So uh, one of the things that I feel like has really changed and what we're going to be digging into today's episode is when I first started selling, there were a lot of principles and best practices that you would read in books and there was never really any data <laughs> you know, to support it or any kind of psychology. It was really more of like a guru teaching people how to sell and saying, here's my way of doing it. Here's how you need to do it kind of thing. And the landscape has really changed, especially in the last you know five years or so, where there's a lot of neuroscience kind of debunking common sales techniques. There's a lot of conversational intelligence where we can actually test some of this stuff. So I'm super excited to get into that today with our guest. Uh, my name is Jason Bay. If you're listening to the podcast for the first time, uh, welcome to Blissful Prospecting. My goal is to have conversations with top reps, sales leaders, and other experts to teach you how to turn complete strangers into paying customers. Uh, today, we're going to be debunking best practices and common sales techniques that actually aren't a best practice. Uh, we're going to be talking about misconceptions around inside selling and you know, challenger sale and that sort of thing. And then lastly, if we have some time, we'll talk about recession-proofing uh, your sales approach to and how to prepare for what's coming up. Our guest is Moeed Amin, and he's director and founder at Proverbial Door. Uh, Moeed, it's good to talk to you. Good to have you on the show. Yeah, good to have you on the show as well. I liked uh, I liked what you said around uh, turning complete strangers into paying customers. Um, I'll go even further and turning complete strangers into your raving fans. Um, Yeah, yeah, I really I really like that introduction. That was a good one. Yeah, one of the things that really sticks out to me about your whole approach and everything that you talk about that raving fans piece. It's did that the, it doesn't stop just closing the deal. You know what I mean? I think that uh, people can be really kind of short-sighted and from a selling standpoint too, and this is, I guess what we'll get into, but when you focus so much on just getting the deal, you don't talk about the bigger goal that people are trying to accomplish. It tends to make the prospect pretty short-sighted too, which makes it a little tougher, but um, let's get into, you did something I thought was really interesting. You guys did interviews with like 422 buyers and you ask them a lot of like questions about this stuff. And first off, that must've been a shit ton of work. <laughs> but second off, I'm really curious, like where did the idea come from and how did you decide to embark on this journey of, you know, we're going to start, we're going to talk to a lot of these people and see what they actually have to say. Yeah. It's, it's up, it's up to 426 now. And, um, the journey started about 15 years ago mm-hmm. and I was a, I was a sales rep myself and I remember walking into a sales meeting and the conversation wasn't really going very well. And at some point the person stopped me and he said, look, let me just give you a bit of advice here. Um, I'm not going to be interested in this kind of stuff. I don't understand the proposition. Um, you know, you don't really get what it is that I'm trying to do. I just don't think we're going to, we're going to take this conversation any further. Wow. It's <laughs> pretty blunt, yeah. huh? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and yeah. who can blame, who can blame this person, right? I mean, if it, yeah. you know, these are, these are busy people and I don't know, something snapped in me where I just thought, you know what? I, I, I just asked him this question. I said, Firstly, I want to thank you for being honest and your generosity. 
can I ask, have you, you know, have you had a great experience with a salesperson? And what was it that made it so great? Mm-hmm. And he shared that with me. And since then, pretty much every single conversation when I can, I started asking those questions of buyers, whether that was me in a sales process with a buyer, and I would ask that at the end. Some of it was informal process. Some of it was very formal. Um, <laughs> we didn't have any fancy regression or analysis or anything like that. It was just me taking notes. Some of these were recorded. Some of these weren't. Um, and sometimes there would be official customer interviews where I, was, I as the leader, was kind of involved in these customer interviews and these prospect interviews, you know, and we're just trying to figure out what was it that made that person buy from this salesperson or this company, both in a competitive and non-competitive bid process. Um, And we just thought, I just started taking notes and started looking at common themes. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I learned a huge amount from that process. And, you know, what, came across really clearly was that you know it's, buyers feel very frustrated and feel mis- misheard uh, sorry not misheard what's the term they don't feel like they're being heard yeah. by salespeople and uh, in general and, and that came across loud and clear from the conversations um, it was a lot of work but it was really enjoyable really really enjoyable and um, yeah I'm going to continue doing this as long as I'm alive and in this profession, because I think uh, if, if you don't understand what your buyers are thinking and how they view you, then how could you possibly get better at sales? And, uh, you know, as things change and as we go into this recession, those kinds of interviews and questions are going to become even more important because, um, you know, buying habits, buying behaviors change. So you need to stay on top of that. Yeah. What's really interesting about this is I remember in my very first sales job going door to door selling house painting services. This is like in 2008. That was always a question I asked people because the paint job was, you know, in the U.S. dollars, you know, three to eight thousand dollars. So it wasn't cheap, you know, for someone to buy it. And I was a 19 year old kid with, you know, braces. So I always ask you, I'm really curious, why did you decide to have hire me and my painting crew to paint your home? I have never painted a house before myself, you know, and they knew that because people would ask me. And it was never because they thought I had the best price or that we would really even provide the best quality or anything like that. It was just, we trusted you. We really like you. We knew you'd take care of us. But that curiosity, it sounds like you have too, where it's just, it's not good enough to just get a customer and to do a good job for them. Like you want to know why, you know, like where does that curiosity come from? Because I think most people would just be satisfied with just trying some techniques and closing some deals and rinse and repeat. Where does that curiosity come from for you? Yeah, good point. And, and before I answer that, I just want to make a point there that I'm, I'm so glad you used the word trust because all 426 so far have used the word trust and honesty in mm. their in their answers to me. Doesn't surprise me, right? And and uh-huh. what's but the thing is, it should, it doesn't surprise you. But what surprises me is how little how little buyers trust salespeople, even though. It seems prevalent. There's not. I've not seen very many training programs that incorporate trust. Mine, mine do, but that's because I've been doing this. But I, I've not seen very many. And you know, the, LinkedIn did a state of sales in 2020, I believe. You know, 40% of buyers found that the, felt that the sales profession profession was untrustworthy, and and 25% wow. of them felt that the sales profession 
um, was, and this is a quote, morally and ethically challenged. So this is a problem that we seem to have not cracked. Um, okay. and, and where does the curiosity come from? You know what? I really don't know. I, when I was young, I, I mean, I, I had challenges when I was young. And I guess I always asked myself the question, which is what motivated these individuals? And I, I remember speaking, I do remember speaking to my father and you know, asking him, you know, saying to him, I'm not smart enough. And, and he actually turned around to me and he said, well, is it that you're not smart enough or that you're not sure what questions to ask? Because if you ask the right questions, then you're on the path to finding the answer or at least finding someone that can give you the answer. You know, no, no one says that you have to have all the answers. I certainly don't. And I remember him telling me this. And um, I guess from there, I started getting very curious, just, just curious about everything. And, and it really started with asking the question, right? Which is, you know, what, why, when, how, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, maybe it came from there. I don't, I mean, I recall it, but I'm not sure if that's the reason why. But, you know, that curiosity is, is one of the cornerstones of being able to ask good questions and diagnosis process. Uh, you know, it's one of the cornerstones of, you know, if you, if you want to get close to the buyer, then understanding their buying behavior, you need people that have that curiosity. I don't know where it comes from, but I'm glad that I have it. I'll be honest. Yeah, it's the reason I ask is that it's something that I talk to reps a lot about when I'm training them on, you know, like a cold call, for example, and how to ask some better questions. We can script out the perfect questions, but if you're not genuinely curious, it just mm. sounds really fake and insincere and and you don't know what tonality to use because you don't know like what mindset to put yourself in so that it comes, so you don't have to think about your tonality, <laughs> you know, so much, but uh, let's like, so what are some of the big themes? What in all of these interviews that you've done, what were the biggest surprises to you? Yeah. Good question. The and first... I know there's some common, sorry to cut you off. I know there's some common oh, no. sales techniques too, that we've talked about before too, that you're like, Oh, Turns out this is not really a quote unquote best practice, you know. So feel free to, yeah, take it where yeah, you yeah. So, so the first, uh, so good, good question. So the, the first, the the first um, surprise for me was, um, you know, I th I thought going into this that, um, sellers were sorry, buyers were going to say, you know, the reason why I bought from this person is because their product was exceptional or their value proposition was incredibly strong um, and they had the better offer compared to others. Turns out that wasn't the case, actually. Not necessarily. In fact, that was probably three or four down the list in terms of priority. The, the first one was, it wasn't just about trust, right? When we dug deeper into this, it was, can I place my reputation in the hands of this person or in this company? And that surprised me, but actually when you reflect on it, it shouldn't really surprise us because yeah. if you're in a buying process, if you're in a decision-making process, your reputation's on the line. No matter how mm -hmm. senior you are, you're still on the hook from someone. And if you make a bad decision, um, you know, you're going to be questioned as to why that happened. You know, we've all heard around, you know, if you buy HP or IBM, whatever it is, you're not going to get fired. That rings so, so, so powerfully true. And yet it's so underappreciated because we think, well, 
if we um you know if we come in with a better offer and better proposition then of course they're going to choose us over someone like IBM etc why wouldn't they but but turns out that's not true the overriding reason why someone will buy something or not buy something is because of trust and and specifically can i trust my reputation in this person's hands um the second thing that really surprised me was uh, the value proposition and i thought business value was going to be the overridingly important thing turns out that's not actually true Tur- uh, actually it's personal value now there are various um frameworks out there maslow's hierarchy there's even tony robbins six human needs the one i personally use just because it's simple and it's been tested with tens of millions of people but it turns out that if you align with those when most people buy it they buy because it aligned with one of their overriding needs and it, it aligned with something that was so important to them in terms of their values and it was a personal value and there's a lot of there's some research now that kind of shows the impact of personal value over business value so that that second one was really really interesting for me and i'll give you a very simple example if you're talking to someone about how innovative your product is but this person is all about certainty it's all about stability it's all about protecting their career or protecting uh, the finances of the business then it doesn't matter how innovative your product is or your solution is they're just not going to be interested no matter how great the proposition is the roi the, the case studies the social whatever it is it doesn't make a difference because it's dissonant to that they're just not going to bother and on the flip side if you're talking to someone who's really ambitious someone who really believes that having an innovative path forward is going to take this business to the next level and therefore take their career to the next level and you're talking to them about stability and certainty probably not going to be of interest for them so those two really struck out to me as areas that were very surprising in the answers that we received um the third one was i expected them to talk about um you know sales people that knew me or that knows our business really well now that is very important turns out that actually the sales person knowing their industry was for some of these buyers more important than knowing about their business Now actually when you think about it that shouldn't be a surprise either. I mean it was a surprise at the time but upon reflection and analysis actually it's not a really surprise because that company might be, you know, they have a strategic plan in order to achieve something but it's always within the context of the industry that they're playing in. You can have a company that has a CAGR of or compound annual growth of say 2 uh, so let's say 10% but if the industry is growing at 15% that company has a problem. Consequently with another industry if they're growing at if this company's projected to grow at 10% and the industry is growing at 7% that gives you a completely different context as to as to what this business is trying to do compared to the scenario A so um you know the industry happened to be incredibly important and most sellers focus on knowing about the company but very few are able to talk about the context of what that company is doing compared with the industry they'll talk about competitors but maybe the the industry at large so things like the five porters five forces you know what is it that's going to impact the industry um and how is that going to impact you and the compound and your growth rate etc um the fourth one uh and this is the final one that, that that really stands out for me that was really important was when people talk about they don't get me 
Um, what I uncovered was that, and for me, this, sorry, for me, I knew this and I was, I was doing this. I didn't know how bad this was. Very few salespeople actually even know how the buyer is being gold. So MBO is management by objectives, you know, whatever you want to call it. Those executives or those buyers will have a set level of metrics or KPIs, management by objectives, where in their performance reviews, they're going to be assessed on whether they've done a good job or not. Less than 1% of salespeople that I've asked uh, could confidently answer the question, which is, tell me the three MBO, the top three MBOs of your buyers. Very, I mean, literally less, I can probably count on one hand, and I've asked hundreds of salespeople, very few on, on one hand have been able to answer that question confidently. And if you don't know how that person is going to be bonused or assessed in terms of their career progression, how can you possibly know what's going to be of value for them? And therefore, how can you really align in a more powerful way your yeah. solution to what's going to be of value for them? And this goes back to human needs and personal value and all those things. Um, I'm not saying sales can't be done without that. Of course not. But if you want your sales to move faster, if you want to really resonate with that buyer, if you want to speak his or her world and language, you better know how they're going to be assessed because chances are the decisions that they make and how they prioritize what they need to do to achieve an objective is going to be very strongly aligned to those MBOs. Um, so those are kind of the four things that actually really stood out and surprised me um, through all those interviews. There are a few others, but those were kind of the main ones. Yeah. Whew. All right. There's so much to dig into here. I'm excited. So let's go back to that first one. Yeah. The reputation. It's so interesting you say that because I just got a like a like a third kind of phase of a project with a client and their VP. He said to me, because we're rolling out this thing where I'm you know, kind of every couple weeks I'm doing a, you know, kind of 30 minute light, you know, enablement with their team on app. And here's one thing that you can try today, go implement it, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. And it's something they're really invested in getting all of the AEs. This is a couple hundred folks. And what he told me was, Jason, I'm really banking on this. I'm putting my reputation online because he just got promoted to a senior VP. And I was like, wow, interesting. And then another one of my clients too, you know, bringing me in for a big training engagement in his first three months on the job as a VP. And he said something very similar. I'm putting my trust in you, man. I'm putting my reputation on the line, like literally saying that. And it's so powerful. I, uh, how do we, with the reputation piece, how do you kind of think about tactically how does this fit into something a sales rep could be conscious of and um, talk more about either during the sales process or outbound, you know, how does someone take this information and like, how do you use this, this insight that you just shared? Yeah. Let's start with the first one, which is how, how can you kind of understand that a bit more? Um, so the answer is going to be an unusual one, but it's actually incredibly powerful, which is, go out there and experience what it's like to be a buyer. Yeah. Um, and I do this with, I did this with sales teams when I managed them. I do this with my clients and the salespeople are required 
to go out there and experience what it's like to be a buyer. Even in a consumer perspective or B2B perspective, doesn't matter, but you've got to experience what that's like. And I would I would recommend that you speak. And here's the other thing that really surprises me. Uh, if you sell HR solutions, um, very few salespeople actually go and speak to the HR executives in their own business to ask them, you know, what... You know, yeah. how, how do you make a decision on something like this? What's really important? I mean, you've got the people right there in your business that can give you the the, the real information. So um, ask them, ask to sit with them when they make a decision, if that's feasible. But at some point, try and experience what it's like to be a buyer. Um, because if you're going to make a judgment call on something, and if you're going to be asked for your opinion and it's going to have weight, you will really quickly start to feel the the weight of that responsibility. So that's probably the first thing that I would really recommend. And it's not hard to do at all. Mm. Um, How would you start to apply this within your sales process? Well, very simple. One simple way of doing so is just asking the buyer, you know, what, what is truly important to you in the objectives that you have? Like, you know, what are the outcomes you're trying to achieve here? Because, you know, we're selling this HR solution, et cetera. But you know, what, what is the outcome that you're trying to achieve here? And then asking the question, which is why? And, and things like, you know, how would you feel if this went well? But I've got to ask you, how would you feel if the decision that you've made, not, not to go with us necessarily, but the path towards that outcome, how would you feel if you weren't able to deliver on that? You know, how would, you know, who, who would have, who would have that uncomfortable discussion with you internally? And that's an uncomfortable question to ask, but we're here to ask those uncomfortable questions in a professional way. And you will start to very quickly understand that, you know, A, there's someone there that's going to keep them on the line, right, about about the situation. And secondly, you will very quickly realize that it is about that reputation. The other thing you could do as well is, what I've seen done very effectively is, when you're asking the question as to what this will mean to you, um, I just ask the question, which is, okay, if we just take off the chief revenue officer hat, chief HR officer hat, et cetera, and just you as Jason, why is this important for you to get right? And what would yeah. be the consequences if this doesn't go your way? Whether you work with us or not, but going down this path, what would be those consequences? What, what would happen if it doesn't go well? And, um, you know, you will start to understand that it's about reputation. You will start to get them to share with you that it's probably about their reputation. If it's not about reputation and they're not too concerned about that, but they will still share what's important to them. So it's really by the questions that you ask. And I would say it's safe to say that their reputation will be at stake. I think it's safe to say that. When you look yeah. at corporate cultures, and, and it, it's, it's, it's sad to say, when you look at corporate cultures, most decisions are not based out of growth necessarily. They're based out of fear. They're based out of protectionism. Um, it, it, the larger the business sometimes, and it's not always the case, but it, it's still there. You know, there's there's political maneuvering in those businesses. You know, it, it, when someone yeah. something goes wrong, uh, people people automatically protect themselves from blame, and and they're looking to they're looking to protect themselves from the blame, and then looking to pass on the blame to someone else. That unfortunately is the nature of some of the cultures in these businesses. So I think you can pretty much safely bet that it's about reputation. The question now is to say, you know, find out what is it that they're really interested in? 
you know, is it career movement? And, and if so, what career movement are they trying to push for? How soon would they like to move into that type of role? You know, is it about the money or is it about something else? Um, you know, some people just want to stay where they are and it's not about that. They're, they're comfortable with they, where they are, in which case you now know that actually it is about reputation because if they make a wrong decision, it's going to shake that stability. So the human yeah. needs does come back. But, you know, I, I wish I could say to you something like a wow factor of a way of doing it, but it's actually very straightforward, very simple. You just got to have the courage to ask those slightly, slightly tougher questions that could be a bit uncomfortable yeah. for both of you. Oh, I love it because it makes the conversation very real. Mm. It doesn't feel like a sales call anymore. You know, I love the, you know, why is this important for you to get right? I'm putting myself in that position and I'm thinking about all the stuff that we hire for in our business and, and pay people to, to do or outsource or software that we help with. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to start talking about, um, our retirement goals and the amount of profit that we need to like, that's the, where the conversation's going to go, that's that's, <laughs> you know, that's the it. amount of uh, yeah. time that I'm working and the balance I can have with like work and per- you know, that's where the conversation's going to go. Okay. So one thing with this is I, you got to have great rapport with a prospect mm-hmm. to be able to have these kind of, kind of conversations. You got a tip or two around how to get to a state with a prospect where they just even feel comfortable talking to you about this kind of stuff. Cause this is some kind of some deep stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> there's some elements of NLP involved in this and NLP has a, there's a lot of misconceptions around NLP, but um, the first thing is, and I've got a sigh because th- this is a bugbear of mine. Do your bloody homework. Just, mm-hmm. just do your bloody homework. Right. It, you know, the more you, the more homework you do, the more you know about the person, the more you know about this person, the more you can do the second thing, which is find something that you admire or appreciate about this person. Yeah. Most of the time we walk into a meeting with a salesperson, which is, gosh, this person's going to be difficult or this person scares me or this person's going to try and throw objections. I've got to make sure that I can handle those objections in the right way, etc. Okay. Stop all that. Find something that you admire or like about this person and say it out loud to yourself. Um, Because you cannot, there's a saying that we have in NLP, you cannot influence and judge someone at the same time. And there's science behind that because, you know, there's a part of your brain called the thalamus, which is there to uh, filter things out and create a spotlight on things. You know, if you're judging someone, then your thalamus is basically saying, Okay, let in all the all, let in all data and senses uh, and information that is congruent with the fact that I'm judging this person. And whenever they're talking, they're talking to you. You're looking for reasons why you may not like this person, or reasons that are aligned to the judgment that you've kind of created, as wow. opposed to you're looking for cues and sensory cues as to why you should admire this person. Nobody, nobody. Uh, I mean, even those, even those that are uncomfortable with, um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uncomfortable with praise. Even those that have a problem with praise, they still inside like it. Oh, Nobody yeah. is go- nobody's going to tell yeah, you, I don't like time. the fact that you admire me. Right. <laughs> and I'll tell you yeah. something. I've done this with senior people and I've said, Hey, look, before we have the, before we talk about, you know, and I did this with that. Uh, I used to, I spent six years selling to chief R and D officers of multi-billion pound companies. These are people that have hundreds of millions of pounds in their budget, right? Very yeah. analytical individuals. So 
companies like PepsiCo, Solvay, you know, Diageo, you name it, right? Very big, large organizations. And um, I, I remember going into a meeting where I said, look, you know, before before we continue, can I just tell you how much I admire what you've done in your career? I, I've been reading up about you on LinkedIn and other places and what you've done. And I've seen the trajectory. Can, can I ask what what made you able to do that? Can, are there any tips that you can give me about how I could how I could be as successful as you? I mean, it's just so rare that someone's not going to like yeah. that. And if you ask it genuinely. So someone yeah. asked me, what's the difference between the techniques you're talking about, Moed, and manipulation? And I said, it's intention. If your intention yeah. is to manipulate this person, then that's your intention. It's not going to go far. And these buyers have more experience in buying than you have selling. So they will see it. Um, so if your intention is because you're genuinely curious, then do so. So do your homework. Find something that you admire about this person. And something we call matching and mirroring. So that's not crossing my arms when they cross their arms, et cetera. It's matching and mirroring who they are, right? So um, gestures is one, clothing is another, but um, excuse me, <coughs> tone of voice is one. If you're speaking to someone from New York who talks really fast, talks really fast, talks really fast, and, and you're coming along and you're from, I'm generalizing here, so apologies, but you're from yeah. Texas, for example, and they talk a lot slower, right? Yeah. You're going to annoy the person from New York. It's like, talk faster, talk faster. Just tell me what, what I need to know. But you're like, okay, well, I think what you need to think about is, and, and vice versa is also true. So tonality yeah. and way that you speak with someone is also another way of creating that rapport. The point of rapport, and this comes back to, you know, evolution of, of, of humanity and our, our brain and how it's evolved is back in the old days, your tribe uh, equaled your survival. Yeah. And if you allowed someone out, if you allowed someone in your tribe, either from outside or within the tribe, who is not congruent with the rest of you in the tribe, that person would be seen as a danger to your very survival and the survival of everyone else. So that person would be ejected. And, and it, it's, it's rooted in that. So rapport is basically you saying, I'm like you, you are like me, not 100%, but there are some commonalities here. That means we're safe with one another. Yeah. And that's what that's about. So you want to basically think about how can I make this person feel safe with me and yeah. feel that we have a common interaction here. So people jump into things like body language and things like that, you know, and, and those are advanced things, but they don't do the basics, which is, you know, do your homework, find something you admire about something, Talk about something that you notice about them. Either it's a watch, either it's what they've done in their career, or it's a piece of clothing. Something that seems to stand out that they could be proud of, or they, they could like to talk yeah. about. And just ask them that question and just say, well, that's, can I ask, I've got a friend, I've got a friend who loves watches, and I do actually have a friend that loves watches. He's pretty much an expert at them. I don't know much about watches, but the watch you're wearing has really caught my eye. May I ask, what is that watch? And what is it that you like about it? And, and, you know, you've got to judge when is the right time to do that. It can't be done in a sleazy way, which is intention again. Um, you know, so, so those are kind of the, the quick ways that I would, I would advise that you start building that rapport. But, you know, it's got to start from being genuine. Um, yeah. And genuine in making a connection with this person, not genuine in making a connection for the purpose of sales. Because you don't even know if you can sell to this person. You don't even know if they're going to be a good client for you right now. Yeah. Um, does that answer your question? Dude, I love that. I mean, we could talk a whole hour just about rapport. That was Yeah, yeah, rapport is a big thing. Yeah. 
the admire thing is is really interesting. I, I love that piece. Okay, so let's move into number two, the value proposition. And you said it's less about business value and more about personal value. And you mentioned something about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and Tony Robbins has got some other thing. What are those things that people tend to personally value that you connect to? Yeah. So let's, let me take a step back in terms of just the science behind this and why it's important, because I talk about emotional value as Mm -hmm. being in some ways more important than business value. And people talk about decisions we make are more emotional than others. And there's there's this whole rhetoric around that. Very few people really understand why. So let me just give a bit of science, if that's okay. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Um, So when you you go to achieve a goal, there are four stages that this occurs in the brain. Stage one is it starts with the amygdala, right? Which is one of the emotional areas in the brain. People think it's the only one. It's not, but it's it's one of the only one of the emotional areas in the brain. So your 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 brain just first thinks, how do I feel about going after this goal? How do I how do I feel right now as well? So people talk about your state right now. It's so important when you're going to achieve achieve a goal, or or you know, uh, yeah. So let's start with that. So it starts with amygdala. Then it moves into the area of the brain called the basal ganglia. The basal ganglia is an area in the brain which is made up of, of various areas but one primary area in the brain and that's the go or no go function so do i go or do i not go for this then you have the the area of the brain that's involved in um planning and actioning a decision across time time frames that's called the lateral prefrontal cortex right and and so that that's the third part and then the final part which is really interesting is the orbitofrontal cord, orbitofrontal lobe. And that is that deals with the emotionality of the action. So how will I how do I feel now? How will I feel when I achieve that goal? And is the difference worth the effort? So why do I talk about that? Is because emotional value or personal value is exactly around that. It's front and center. So if I can't see emotionally how I'm going to benefit from this journey with you, I'm very unlikely to want to take this, to take the solution or I'm going to be very hesitant and therefore I'm going to bring more people involved, which means greatest number of stakeholders and slower sales cycles, more complexity for you, or I just won't do it. So that emotional emotionality of the relationship that you have with someone is absolutely vital. And that's why personal value is so important. In a recession time, and w- I experienced this when I worked at CEB, which has been acquired by Gartner since then, um, and who incidentally published the Challenger, Challenger sale book. We had a situation where you know a buyer was, and this is a chief HR officer, was being challenged by the CFO with a product that we'd sold them. And the product showed all the right ROI, right, all the business value. But the CFO said, look, we're in a tight situation. Can we just not do without this for now? And and the chief HR officer said, no, because I really want this. Yeah. And that that is a great example of personal value. Because if this, if she had not really believed in this, if she had not seen the personal value to her, 
she wouldn't have had the strength and courage to a put her reputation on line and b just just kind of stand up for this and say to the CFO and say no no I really want this right I want to keep this and the reason why she did is actually because we're able to help her with her own knowledge as a chief HR officer so our product was directly tied to helping her become more of an expert as a chief HR officer and number two, it helped her with her career advancement. And we actually had discussions with her around her career advancement. And, you know, what is it that she wanted to achieve? Where does she want to get to? Where are the gaps in her knowledge? And how can we fill the gaps in that knowledge? And also fill the gaps in knowledge in her, the people in her team who may raise up into that position or at least help raise the kind of knowledge of the whole team, which therefore made her look good. So there was a personal value, and, and the research comes out of this, you know, 68% of buyers that see personal value as well as business value are more likely to pay a higher price for your solution. 71% of buyers that see personal value as well as business value are more likely to buy your solution. Personal value has twice the impact of business value. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty powerful stuff. So what are some of the kind of triggers, I guess. You mentioned like knowledge, expertise, career advancement. What are some of those things that people tend to value that you want to connect to as a sales yeah, professional? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I didn't, yeah, apologies. I didn't touch on the human needs that you talked about. So, the, so I, I use Tony Robbins one just because it's very simple and it's been tested with God knows how many millions, probably like 60 million people. I mean, who knows, right? Um, so I'll use that, but you can use others, right? You don't have, just use the one that works for you. So human needs, um, so there are six. Certainty, uh, significance, uh, variety or adventure or uncertainty, growth, contribution, and then love and connection. Those are the six overriding human needs. And most and people have two needs, two of those needs that are kind of overriding, but we have a mixture of, of, of all six. Um, why do we talk about human needs? Let's think about money, right? A lot of people still misconstrue that money is the goal. It isn't. Money is a tool, right? I mean, it's not even real, right? We just made it up, right? To be honest, it's a tool. It's what you do with that money that's the most value. For some people, it's I can show that I have 20 million in my bank account. That feeds my ego, which is therefore significance. For some people, is the more money I have, the more I can enjoy my life, the more I can have certain adventures, travel the world, etc. right? That speaks to adventure, right? And it also seeks to growth, personal growth, things like that. Um, other people, they want to use money because they want to give their family the most amazing life, life that they did not have. Again, that's contribution and love and connection. So whatever decision you make, it leads to one of those six human needs. And if you can figure out what those six human needs are, and you can just ask questions. You don't ask them, you know, what are your human needs, right? But you kind of ask them, why is that important to you, <laughs> right? But That'd be you weird. Can, <laughs> can you imagine that? Yeah, yeah. Like, which fill out this form and tell me what you love, and I'm going to sell the hell out of you using that. Right? It's like, no, but but it's it's you know, you just ask questions, which are you know, again, questions are so powerful. You know, why is that important for you? Um, and, you know, what would that career move mean for you personally? Like, you know, and you've got to build up a certain level of rapport, as you as you said earlier. You know, you can't just ask it in the first meeting. You've got to, you've got to prove that you're trustworthy enough to ask those kind of questions. Um, but, it, you know, m 
the point isn't to ask it immediately. The point is to, at some point, ask those questions or at least figure out or at least, at least create a hypothesis. My God, I mean, just create a hypothesis as to why that's yeah. the case. So, um, you know, that, that those are the kind of things that we that, that I would advise that you do. And then the, the other one, excuse me, the other one is uh, speak their language. Uh, you had Skip Miller on your podcast. I know. I, I noticed, and and he gave us a train. Yeah. He, he gave a training training program to a company that I used to work for called Data Monitor back in two thousand and nine, I think, or two thousand and eight. Um, uh, you know, you've got to be able to speak the language of the buyer, and if you use Jungian, Jungian's uh, model, you know, the DISC profile, for example. You've got four main ones, right? You, you've got the driver, you've got the analytical, you've got the expressive, and you've got the amiable. Um, you know, you've got to know what personality types those buyers sit in, uh, because a driver is all about results, results, and efficiency and timing and getting to the goal. Whereas an analytical is about data. They take time with their decisions. They like to look at all the possible information first. You know, come to a decision quite slowly but methodically amiables are going to be different expresses are going to be different if you're not speaking that language again you break rapport but again you're not speaking their language right this is the whole tribe mentality thing you're not like me i'm not really i'm not really i'm not digging this vibe right at least Mm -hmm. appreciate the type of person i am right um so that as well is also very important it's not enough to just know the human needs you've got to take it a step lower than that but below that as well and say well what language am i speaking with this individual from a from a psychological perspective and then the other language which skip miller talks about is you know if you're speaking to a c-level person versus a vp versus a manager you've got to be able to speak their language in alignment with their interests you know the c-level yeah. person's all about market share equity growth capital growth etc the vp is more about p l and the manager is more about functionality and making my life easier rather than giving me a headache, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, those are the kind of the three levels that I I would advise when it comes to how you kind of connect with your buyer in, in a really powerful way. And, and these are things that are just not trained very well. Uh, they're also things that are quite hard that require practice. Actually, I don't know. It's not hard. They just require practice. Um, and and I, I wish more more managers see the importance of this because if you ask those business leaders you know why didn't you buy from this person they will tell you the reasons why and and yet they expect those same approaches to be conducted by the very same salespeople um in their own business so it it just it just doesn't make sense to me does that answer your question i feel like i went on a tangent there no this is all really good shit uh so we talked about the reputation piece one the personal value two just real quick on three, knowing me versus industry, I think is so like, it's such an interesting one because this is the mistake I see a lot of people make when they do outbound is they try to be all things to all people. They say things like we're industry agnostic. And I'm like, you realize to a prospect that just sounds so generic to them, right? When you say we've worked with Amazon and Google and you're reaching out to a software startup with 200 employees, like they're not Amazon and Google Mm. that, that doesn't show anything about how much you know about their industry. And, and I always advise people like work in pockets of your client base, like look for people that have a lot in common around their industry challenges and all that stuff. And like, you got to nail that language, you know? Um, I want to just double click on that. We don't have a ton of time to like really dig into this one, but 
when you say industry and you mentioned something about the five forces, what are some things that as a sales professional, we should know and be talking about when it comes to an industry so that we show the buyer that, hey, we have some industry acumen as well. Yeah. Yeah, really important. Okay, so I'll try and go through this fast. I don't think we'll have time to talk about the recession thing. Maybe that should be part two, but um, yeah. let's go into this one. This this is so this is really important. So, um, I, in my in my own podcast, uh, I I work with a financial expert. I used to be a VP of um, Ernst and Young and and a, and a bank, JP Morgan. That was it. Yeah one of, one of the one of the gaps in salespeople is their business acumen, and especially their financial acumen. Warren Buffett said that finance is the language of business, right? So if you think about it, if I can't speak the language of business, then then what place do I have in being involved in business? And sales is just a very powerful lever of business. And in terms of industry, the reason why it's so valuable and so important to know that and why, why buyers really appreciate salespeople that understand their industry is because the forces that they're facing in their industry will determine the decisions that they make. And the fine, even the way that their financial statements are structured is in accordance to their industry, right? You've got high operational gearing versus low operational gearing, right? So in retail, for example, their profit margins are squeezed as hell, like in, in terms of food groceries and things like that. And what's going on in their industry in terms of supply chains, raw material costs, et cetera, those kind of things talent, soft, you know, all the things that are involved in that industry, you've got to know that because when we talk about compound annual growth, when we talk about margins and high operational gearing versus low operational gearing, when we talk about revenue growth, when we talk about even the types of talent or the structure of the business itself um, and how they are structured, whether it's a decentralized structure versus a centralized structure, you know, their product development, those things are all vital to the context of the solution that you're offering them because the solution is there to help them achieve an outcome. But here's the thing. The outcome has been created in line with the strategy based on what's going on in their industry. And the more senior the person you're talking to, the more that this is part of their world because they are thinking, who is going to come into my industry and potentially displace me, which is part of Porter's Five Forces? right? What are the strengths of my suppliers? Again, for five forces, right? And, and the strengths of those suppliers, do, how do they impact my business? Because ultimately, that's going to impact the P&L. And when we talk about insight selling, that is absolutely powerful. Because oftentimes, when it comes to insight selling, and insight selling is about helping those buyers see around corners, there is no powerful way of being able to help them see around corners than to understand their industry because those five forces are what's going to probably knock them sideways. And the movement of those five forces are going to knock them in a way that they either don't understand or don't see or the magnitude of which they've underappreciated. So it's incredibly important to understand the industry that you're playing in. And the other reason why, from a very selfish perspective for you as a salesperson, is we talk about personalization at scale, which doesn't exist. You can't do that. But you can have relevancy at scale. And the most powerful way to have relevancy at scale is to talk about the industry that, that the, comp- the person you're speaking with is playing in. Right? The other ways, like you know, the role of the person, etc. But even the role and the challenges of the role are within the industry. You know, the uh, the CIO in a retail industry, 
won't exactly have the same challenges as a CIO in the chemicals industry, right? They're going to be different. So again, industry is really important. If you're an SDR or salesperson and you're being asked to make 100 calls a day or whatever it might be and trying to reach as many people as possible, I'm telling you, industry is your your most powerful way of having relevancy at scale that should help increase your conversion rates. So that is why industry is so powerful because it's the world that we it's the world that that executive lives in, and the the decisions that they're making, the very P and L that they're structuring, the financial statements that they're talking about, presenting to the world. You know, it's it's all shaped by that industry. So I, I can talk about this for a lot more, but I, I'm trying to distill it down as into yeah. the core points as much as possible. No, we'll definitely have to get you on for a part two to talk about the you know how all of this kind of applies to the recession. Yeah that's likely going to be, well, that's already started. 